everybody. Get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but Foodie married Beast anyway, and together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis on this snow-driven weekend. We're glad to have you here. We've got a great show uh, in this warm studio. Of course, Deb Moser from Central Farm Markets is going to join us and tell us how you can go to the farm market and still stay warm and eat warm. Um, and here's a question we talk about. Do you eat like a human? Maybe you think so, but... Maybe not. Uh, Dr. Bill Schindler. Maybe you eat like a bad human. Maybe you're a bad boy. Right. You're a bad human. So Dr. Bill Schindler is the author of Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. He's been on the show before. He's an archaeologist, a primitive technologist. I guess he fixes old computer systems or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's a chef. Uh, He founds and directs a place called the Eastern Shore Food Lab. And their goal is to preserve and revive ancestral dietary approaches that create a nourishing and ethical eating. Right. Um, and, and he's he, on with his wife, Christina. Yes, I'm getting to that. Okay, well, you know, you're taking a long time. I'm I'm introducing interesting people. Boy, oh boy. Anybody out there who's married knows the pain I live with. His wife, Christina, and he operate the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, and that's a foodery that's designed to provide nourishing food using these ancestral foods and, and techniques. And we're going to ask why it's called a foodery and yeah. what that means. So we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, so, and... You know, if you see what the COVID pandemic is doing to people's food supplies and access, uh, maybe even some of your neighbors, and you know that, that, that it's very challenging out there for lots of families who are on the edge, uh, and you want to help, but you don't know what the right way is, um, our, our guest, Mark Buker, who is a locally well-known guy, he's a restaurateur and an entrepreneur and a former radio guy, uh, came up with an answer. Um, he came up with Feed the Fridge, and he has positioned, uh, I think, 39 or 39 refrigerators around the area, and he works with local chefs to pay restaurants to cook meals that go into these fridges, and people can just come and pull right, them out. But the them. reason why we booked Mark on this particular show is because it's after the holidays. And as most people know, there is a glut of wanting to volunteer and wanting to spend money and wanting to help charities in December. And I wanted to bring Mark in to be like, and what happens in January? So that is what we're going to do today. What happens in January is we keep feeding the fridge. <laughs> right. And we've also got a guy with us, you know, the playoffs are coming. Beer is essential to the, well, the playoffs are here, but the big playoffs are are coming tomorrow. Uh, Chris Burns is president of Old Ox Distribution Brewery um, out in, way out in Ashburn, Virginia. It's not that far. It's real far. It's not that far. (laughs) It's not that bad. Yeah, it's not that bad. But they sell uh, canned and keg beer around the region, and we brought him in because we're going to be tasting his brewskis. Okay, I hate that word. I love it. So okay. why don't we first talk to Deb. Deb, are you there? Deb Moser from Central Farm I Markets. Am, I would love yeah, to go shopping at the here. market today, but it's cold as all get out. So what do we but do? But the farmers it's are cold. there, right? The farmers come out. Everybody, that's true. If they can get out of their areas, they come in. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, some of them come two and a half hours away. So, um, or like our oyster person comes from uh, three, three to four hours away. So they make the effort. Um, and we like to think that you make the effort to come out too. Right. Well, so what are some uh, pro tips, if you will, to come to market to like sort of stay warm and get your goods and get out? 
well, first dress warmly <laughs> and cover your face. And I don't mean just for COVID, but keep your face covered when the wind's blowing. It can it can get brutal out there. It sounds like know, my grandmother's advice. <laughs> What's that? I said it sounds like my bubby's advice. Okay, go ahead, Tab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and cover your head. Uh-huh. And, you know, wear your warm coat. But remember that in, in freezing temperatures, uh, things, lettuces, which we do have, kales, all these delicate things the uh, will freeze very quickly. So bring your bags, keep your, you can even put some newspaper at the bottom of the bag and that will help keep them warm and come in shop and go home, but look for warm foods. For example, the um, heirloom kitchen, the soup stand, um, the soups are ready to go. They're delicious. They're homemade. And then we take them home and we doctor them up. We might throw um, the meat crafters lamb or gay sausage in, or we might throw sweet potatoes in, mm. or we might throw kale in. Um, last night we did leftover chicken. That's going in the soup tonight. So um, I am a big know, proponent of like throwing stuff in soup. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The more you throw in, the better. Well, the better we like it. Yeah, but, me too. You know, the per- the point is keep yourself warm at the market, keep your groceries warm and keep your innards warm. I love it. Simple as that. Okay. Tell everybody where they can find you, Deb. Central Farm Markets. Centralfarmmarkets.com. Mm-hmm. We're there. We're there for you. Excellent. And I do want to say, I mean, I know it's two weeks away, but we have Valentine's Day coming up and we have Super Bowl right. Sunday coming up. That's right. So people we'll be need talking to talking about those. Yeah, people need to start thinking ahead. Yep. All right, we'll see you yep. next week, Deb. All right, thank okay. you. All right, stay warm. Chris Thanks Burns, you. step two. First of all, I have to say, Chris, if anybody looked like a brewer, it's you, man. You, you are it. You're the personification of brewing. It's the beard. It, it is, is the must, beard. It's more than that. It's the whole persona. Well, the beard's essential to being a good brewer. A good brewer. Yeah, oh, you have I, to dip it. I don't want to talk <laughs> about that on here, but yeah, I dip my beard in the beard all the time. So, so tell us about Ox. Old Ox. Yes. Well, we're a production brewery out in Ashburn, Virginia. Um, we've been around for about seven and a half years, going on eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, our main purpose is to get beer into the hands of our local market through our distribution channel. So we provide packaged beer and keg beer out to the local market. And for us, local means Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and kind of close in Maryland. So um, kind of uh, Anne Arundel County, Frederick County, um, and then you know, kind of inside the beltway as well. Well, I have a question. When you say production brewery, what does that mean? Like, how does, what does that mean to the layperson? Or, and what does it mean to the brewer? Like, how do, what does that mean? Well, certainly (laughs) over the last. What does it mean? Tersely put, I have to say. (laughs) So, especially over the last decade, we've seen a proliferation of breweries and we've seen a whole bunch of different models work really well. Mm -hmm. Um, You've seen small tasting room only breweries. You might call them nano breweries. You've seen farm breweries come online with these almost vineyard-like views. Um, And then you've got uh, us. We're more of a a production brewery, meaning we're more in a warehouse space focused on um, large capacity that can take beer out to the market as opposed to people. So do you have a tap room? Is there a tap room there? We have two tap rooms, actually. So we have, (laughs) I know, right? Our original tap room at our production brewery in Ashburn. And then we opened a second facility uh, right before the pandemic at great timing hmm. um, in Middleburg, Virginia, which is a lovely little village. Oh, uh, we're, we know County. it. I wish we had a horse. Um, then we'd so fit in. why don't we taste a beer? And then when we come back to you, we can talk about why you guys got into brewing to begin with. Because you do it with your father, right? Yeah, the whole family's involved. The whole family. It's a yeah. family biz. Um, okay, so what beer are you pouring first? All right. So our first beer today is War Wagon 
Kolsch. Okay. Uh, and this beer was brewed uh, to support the Ashburn Volunteer Fire and Rescue Department. Mm-hmm. So a portion of proceeds from this beer go to support that. I love that. But additionally, we host a chili cook-off uh, in March uh, with all of the local Ashburn restaurants. And then all of the, the funds from that event go to support the fire department as well. Cool. And what are we looking for as far as taste in the beer? All right. So this is going to be very light, very crisp. It's going to have some... Uh, bread aromas and a dry cracker finish. It's uh, just nice, light, easy drinking. Bread aromas as opposed to You're yeasty. raising a lot I of like money that. for the okay. fire department. That's great. Oh, we are. Yeah. Are there are there fire engines, refurbished Cadillacs? I mean, there's a lot of... Okay. Can we They're get to our next guest, please? <laughs> okay. okay. While All you, right. While you pour that, we're going to go to our first guest. All right. So, Dr. Bill Schindler was on the show, I don't know, a couple of years ago, two, three years I ago. I don't know. Bill, were you on Foodie and the Beast? I thought you were just on Industry no. Night. It was, it was in the bottom of the hotel there. Yeah, he was only All right. on Industry so Night. So that's when I was on Industry yeah. Night. Okay. But talk about a fascinating, I mean, we, we've got a modern-day caveman here. Why yeah. don't we start from the start and just talk a little bit about your background and how you got into to, to this field? Sure. So I'm an archaeologist and anthropologist by training, um, and as you mentioned, a primitive technologist. So, yeah, at some level, we're like caveman. My work is focused on learning how to replicate technologies from the past, stone tool technologies, uh, traditional fiber practices, tanning fibers, all of those sorts of things. And I've always been interested in, in food and diet and health. And what I recognized and realized about 20 years ago was that every, almost every single prehistoric technology, when I say prehistoric, I mean three and a half million years worth of our ancestors creating technologies, almost every one of them was focused on something to do with food. You know, getting food, processing food, cooking food, sharing food. And if you think about that, literally the Albert Einsteins, all the Albert Einsteins, the most brilliant minds of our ancestors for three and a half million years, almost everything they came up with had to do with processing food in some way. Uh, it really uh, resonated with me and became very, very much important. And uh, my wife and I, Christina, we, we realized that, you know, there's something to this and understanding it and trying to find ways of applying even lessons from millions of years ago into our own family's life could make a difference. And it did. It made a tremendous difference. But what and does that mean? Group. Can you break that down to... Give us an uh, example. Well, no, to more like lay terms, like for the person who's not an anthropologist and an archaeologist, what what does changing the way you all view food and make food and taste food, what does that mean? Well, the first thing that it means is you know, all of us here, are, you know, probably every guest that you've had, all the work that you guys did is focused on you know, what, what people do with food, with chefs or, 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 or mixologists, whatever, whatever, whoever they are, they're doing something to food. Mm-hmm. And we like it. We know that it changes the flavor and aroma and the presentation. And we get a lot of enjoyment out of it. But what I'm here to tell you is that it's actually essential. Like processing food the right way is actually essential for humans to eat properly, to be fully nourished. We have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And, you know, in, in late terms, what I'm suggesting is, and, and this is, I wholeheartedly believe this, that we are not designed to eat almost every food that we consume. We know that humans are omnivores. In other words, we eat a whole lot of different foods, but we're not omnivores by design. No greater being designed us to consume these foods and safely derive nutrition from them. In fact, we're omnivores through technology. We require something to be done to food before it goes into our mouths in order for us to safely get the most amount of nutrition. All food? Or when you say that, do you mean proteins or even plant food? Actually, more so plant food than even proteins. Yeah, I mean, when was the last time you saw humans grazing? Well, I know, but we eat lettuce. We graze on lettuce. Yeah. Right? 
So, you know, plants Dr. Bill, are help me plants out here. Have a lot of nutrition, but they're dangerous. They're inherently dangerous. Plants are literally every plant on this planet has, so it has some toxin in it because it's defending itself from the outside world because they can't move. Mm-hmm. So some of these toxins are benign and don't really hurt us. Some of them will kill us outright, like if we ate the wrong mushroom. But most of these plants have toxins in them that will build up and cause problems over time if we don't process them properly. Interesting. It's actually much so not to say that we shouldn't eat vegetables, but what I'm suggesting is we shouldn't just walk into the produce section and say, okay, some of this food is good for me. All of it must be better. If I'm going to get healthy, I should just shut off my brain and start eating as many vegetables as possible. It'll lead to a lot of problems. Well, well wait, yeah. we have to take We're going to take a break, but I, I, what I want to do when we come back, can we talk about how you researched, I mean, if you're going back millions of years, how you figured out what people were eating and how they were eating. Yeah. And how they were preparing Absolutely. the technology they were using to prepare their food. And now from how burning you're it. executing it today. This is right. David and Nikki Nellis. It's Foodie and the Beast. We're going caveman. We'll be back in just a sec. All right. We're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. And unless you know how Fred Flintstone made a Brontosaurus burger, you probably have no idea how our forebears uh, managed to get food and prepare food and eat food. And we're talking to Dr. Bill Schindler and Christina Schindler um, who are experts in this field, and uh, uh, Bill and Christina, I want to get back to the, the question we asked. I mean, how do you get? How did you get all the information you have? Where, where, how how did you do the research to know how people three and a half million years ago were eating? Well, a lot of it was archaeological, right? So we're, we're we've traveled the world and worked uh, on different archaeological sites, and most importantly, looked through a lot of the literature for decades on how archaeological sites around the world have been interpreted, but. Just as importantly, and even more um, impactfully, we have taken the family around. How many countries have we been in as a family? Oh, well over 20. Well over 20 countries living and working with indigenous and traditional groups who are still carrying on. Unfortunately, they're dying traditions, but traditions that in some cases bring to life what we've seen in the archaeological record. And you know, we've taken the family for numerous reasons, but one is we get to experience it through everyone's eyes and then come back trying to find ways to take that information and make it meaningful and relevant in our modern Western kitchen. And that's the important part. Right. So then, so did that, is that what led to um, the Eastern Shore Food Lab? Is that how all that came to be? Yeah, so I'll say, let me say a few words about the Eastern Shore Food Lab, and then I'll have Christina to talk about the modern family kitchen, because they work sure. together. The Eastern okay. Shore Food Lab started as... Um, a, a, a piece of Washington College. We've now separated from the college and are, and are doing it on our own. It's a nonprofit that's focused on research, education, and outreach. Really, the idea of, of actually going and doing the research and finding ways to empower people to take those lessons to make meaningful steps in their in their own families. So we do a lot of we continue to do a lot of research, but also um, online, uh, virtual, uh, and in-person classes on uh, literally how to take those steps and what to do in your kitchen with your own tools. Mm-hmm. But the, the really exciting part as well is so one of the positives for us as a family as a result of COVID actually is the creation of the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. So when COVID hit through the Eastern Shore Food Lab, we wanted to do something for the community. And one of the ways getting back to that idea of processing and technology is how to make grains more accessible to your body. And of course, that would be sourdough. So Bill took our oldest daughter at the time, she was 16, Brianna, up to the Eastern Shore Food Lab where they were making loaves of sourdough bread for the local social action committee. And we're giving that out during COVID. Well, Brianna took a liking to it. And actually Easter of uh, 2020, Mm -hmm. she made little samples of sourdough bread and crackers and gave them out to neighbors and had like 18 orders. And this grew. 
And we literally were making deliveries and doing this out of our home of sourdough bread, crackers and things. And then Bill's book, Eat Like a Human Sold. And right. all these pieces come together. And we've always said that we wanted to do this as a family because we've been very blessed to have traveled the world and seen how people and cultures have done this. So we launched uh, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which blends all this research that we've learned from around the world and now are putting into practice and putting this food, this healthy, delicious and nutritious food into the hands of our community. And it's all aligned with the research um, from the book, Eat Like a Human. And well, it's grown much more than sourdough. We're doing uh, you know, organ meats and bone broth and fermented vegetables and just caramelized maize products and all of those, all those things that can really make an impact on your diet. Real traditional. So is it a restaurant? Like, can we explain how people Is it a access? store, a restaurant? Is it a storefront? Is, is it a restaurant? Well, Do we order? Right. How's it we work? We started with and it was called Rise by Brianna, which I think was very catchy mm -hmm. uh, that she quoted that one. So, and everyone at first started thinking we were a bakery. We're not a bakery. We're so much more than just sourdough bread. So we mm -hmm. like to call ourselves a foodery. Uh, so where people can come in and get nutrient-dense food, whether it's sourdough bread that's gone through that slow fermentation pro um, process, sauerkraut, roasted red peppers that go through that lacto-fermentation. We make our own cheese from local milk. Uh, we're known for our pizzas on Friday night that we do pre-orders on Monday. They're sold out by Tuesday because we make everything from scratch. So it's but not it's a sit-down restaurant, restaurant, right? It's not a sit-down restaurant. So that's a, why we're not a restaurant. It's a foodery. Okay. Right. Gotcha. It's a foodery. And so like with and, and pizzas and uh, these other products, how are you applying everything you've learned to make, to either make them more nutritious or, you know, how are you sourcing your, like, how are you sourcing your products and how are you able to execute your vision? So number one, we source incredibly, uh, you know, as best as, as locally and as high end as we can. And that's very important to us. But what we stand on, in addition to that, is what we just talked about earlier is it's the processing that's important. So we control every part of the process in-house. Um, and it's that process that can make the, the raw ingredients themselves as nutritious and safe and healthy as possible. So like Christina mentioned, if it's grains, they're uh, always sourdough or soaked or sprouted. If it's dairy, we're fermenting it. If it's vegetables, we're doing something to it, usually some sort of lacto-fermentation or nystomalization. But the important piece is that we are taking a raw ingredient and we are, there's nobody outside of, you know, none of it is coming in already done. We're doing it in-house. Right, fermenting you make butter everything. All I think a really good example is our tacos. So we went and did research in Oaxaca, Mexico, I guess about three Decembers ago. Mm -hmm. And we literally were in a traditional village with dirt floors. It was very intense with yeah. the family and learned how they nishtamalized their maize to make it as nutritious as possible. And it was very interesting. Bill made a point earlier about by taking the whole family, we get a different insight because where they grind their maize down on the Molino, it's kind of like the pub of, of where everybody would gather, but only the women are able to go there. So because myself and the girls were there, we were able to get it in. So now we import maize from Oaxaca, Mexico. We nishtamalize it, which is that ancestral process. Yeah, that is a word. Over. Can you back up? That's not a word I think a lot of people are familiar with. So can you explain sure. what that means? Sure. So we know for sure it's at least 4,000 years old, but it's probably much older. We actually just identified a, a technique, archaeological technique to identify it earlier in the record. But um, maize is one of the most difficult grains on the planet for humans to digest, right. even though it's most widely grown and widely consumed grain in the world. Um, and in order to process it properly, uh, you take the maize, so we're thinking like dried corn, think dried corn, right. and soak it in an alkaline solution. Usually it's uh, lye or something called calcium hydroxide or cow, 
soak it, simmer it, and soak it overnight, and then rinse it, and then go ahead and grind it. And it is the only way to release the, all the nutrients in it and make them available to the human body. So it has to be like soaked out, much like beans, right? Like beans, in order to be palatable, like you have to soak them, right? Like and you have to cook them, like you have to get them to a place where they're, you know, digestible, right? And even then, and, that's still too hard. Then, for a lot of people. And, but that's a really good point because you know none of these techniques are that difficult. I mean, our ancestors were doing these things in caves with clay pots and stone tools and an open fire. Mm-hmm. So, the, but the problem is we're skipping a lot of these processes today. And if you skip one of them in one food source, it's maybe not a big deal. But we're doing it in all of we're skipping these important processes in all of the parts of our diets, and well, it's that's... leading to the, the, the issues that we have today. Well, do you think when you say we're skipping these processes? I mean, I, we keep using you keep using the word process, and I keep thinking processed food, right? So, processed food is a big no-no. We're not supposed to eat processed food. But what you're saying is, is like bread is processed, right? Like, you know, maize has to be processed in order for us to be able to digest it. So there's sort of a bastardization of what a processed food is, right? And and that's the problem. It's this, we're using the same word, and when I'm talking about it in an ancestral traditional sense, it's very positive. It's necessary to make the food as safe and nourishing as possible. But today, most food processing is at the expense of the nourishment, and it's for money or for, for uniformity or shipping or for volume. Or those right. Yeah. right, right, right. So, what's next for you guys, and how do we get well, access to what you're doing? <laughs> What, do you have a question? I do have a question. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait. Don't tell us what's next. You have three teenage boys. So are they all, you know, mountain men? Two girls and a boy. Two girls and a boy. Sorry. Um, But three teenagers. Have they all, uh, you know, and they've come along on all your travels and all that. Where are their heads on this kind of eating? Or do they sneak out to Taco Bell? (laughs) (laughs) So they're teenagers, rightfully so. I, I like to think, or we like to think, that they have definitely a different view of food. And yes, will they cheat and get French fries somewhere? Yeah, but it's it's funny. There's some things that are definitely taboo in our house. But the nice part is with our the modern kitchen, they're all there and they're working. Last night, flipping pieces, they were all there. So it is a full fledged family affair for us. And you know, they're able to take. I mean, our son will go shoot a deer and take it apart, and then have the loins. Um, on the stove for us within 20 minutes for dinner. So they really see the benefit then of that whole kind of start to finish experience when it comes to food. That's impressive. That is very I, um, impressive. W- one more question. Are there people, I mean, part of you know, the beauty of this diet is that it can cure high blood pressure and, and help people control their weight and, you know, make a healthier body. Are there people that, um, I'm trying to think, have become sort of acolytes of the foodery and, and basically use you for their, their food supply, for most of their food supply? And, and are they healthier for it? Yeah, 100%. You know, we, we sell at the farmer's market on Ken Island every Thursday, and then we have also the foodery, and we, and we ship and have uh, deliveries and things like that as well. It's been amazing. Um, it's very nice that we've grown from just the bakery to have all these other foods as well and are really, you know, people come in and turn around right away and, and open up the reach in and grab all the essential things for their week that, that, for, for, for the food. So everything, created. like yesterday, you know, you know, people came in and got their pizza. So last night we did this amazing uh, gravy pizza sauce yeah, with Italian yeah. gravy pizza sauce with the homemade meatballs and our sourdough uh, crust and of course the homemade cheese that we do. But then they walk, uh, reached into our walk-in and they grabbed Chicken bowl broth for the first snow day today. They were all going to make soup. And we had chicken liver pate. And we do a homemade peanut butter and mustard. So we have all these other types of staples. So people really are 
coming in and shopping in our foodery and not just coming in for a loaf of bread. Okay, well, let me see one other person. Yes. The, um, you know, the nice thing, you said the word diet, but the, and I know diet really means just the way that you eat, but we think about it as, you know, the fad diets and things. This really isn't a diet. It's, the nice thing is if you approach your food this way, you can stop worrying and feeling guilty and counting calories. I haven't I am 49 years old. I have never been healthier in my life. I haven't counted a calorie in 10 years. Um, I mean, it truly really is amazing. All right. Well, listen, we appreciate both of you joining us. We're definitely taking a field trip because we've got to go see this foodery. Can we order online? Can, can we, you, can do we ship? order online? Absolutely. Yeah. Just head on to the modernstoneagekitchen.com. Cool. And you can order your products and ship them out. And wow. if you're interested in learning more about Eat Like a Human, we actually are starting an intensive 10-week online course on Tuesday night. So it's quite timely uh, talking with you all today. So yeah, Tuesday from 6 to 8, we're going to take each chapter of the book each week, and we're going to be Zooming in experts from around the world. So when we were in Kenya learning um, about actually fermented dairy, we'll have people in Mexico and then um, digging into the recipes so people can do a deeper dive cool. into this whole approach. Excellent. Give me the website again, and uh, we thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So the two websites, modernstoneagekitchen.com to get information about our prepared food. And then if you head to eatlikeahuman.com to get more information about this whole approach. Great. We've got to go, but I do want to tell everybody that when Bill brought that sourdough bread into the Industry Night studio, we tore at ago. it like animals, like our ancestors, <laughs> and fought over it. There was blood on the walls. Thank you both for joining us today. This is David and Nikki Nelson. Thank Nelizer you so much. Right, Beauty and the Beast. We got some beer in our future. We'll be back in just a sec. Okay, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. And I want to say again, beer here. We got Chris Burns from the Old Ox Brewery in one of the coolest sweatshirts I've ever seen. It's an Old Ox Brewery sweatshirt. It is a cool sweatshirt. I love it. I love it. We got to get a TV show again. Cool for these, uh, okay, January so days. Uh, we talked about your concept, but we didn't really talk about how the concept got started. So how did you guys, how did you and your dad and your whole family, another family business, how did you all get into brewing? My dad dragged me kicking and screaming into the hobby uh, before we even had an inkling of, of starting a brewery of our own. So he had learned how to homebrew from an old college roommate. Mm -hmm. And one day, about 15 years ago, he called me up and he said, hey, I could use some help brewing this batch of beer. Why don't you come help me? And I said, that doesn't really sound like my kind of thing, Dad. I'll, I'll pass. What was your kind of thing at that point? <laughs> at that time, it was uh, you want to tell us? Was watching TV, uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the G-rated version. Yeah, right? okay. um, so he was a good salesman, and he, he con convinced me to come over. And I was instantly hooked. I thought it was uh, a fantastic pursuit because it – it, it's one of those hobbies or professions that can really satisfy both halves of your brain. You can be as analytical and scientific-minded as you have the capacity to be, but you can also be incredibly creative and artistic. And uh, there was something about that combination that really— Well, because I think uh, creating beer, especially when you're homebrewing before you're going, like, big batch, obviously, but you can play. And if it doesn't work out, so what? You spill it— like. You know, yeah, you make a bad gallons. batch, you make yeah. a bad batch. You know what I mean? Like, nobody's going to exactly yell at you. or You're not in trouble if you make nope, a bad batch. No pressure. You know what I mean? So you, exactly. There's no pressure. So do you take wild elliptical swings through the beer universe and experiment with, with you know, beer fusions or whatever that uh, never see the light of day or some of which have made it into Absolutely. Production? Yeah, we um, 
actually one of our pandemic pursuits was actually letting our best customers into that process. So we started a quarantine canteen program where we were actually brewing. We dusted off the old home brewing system. We brewed 11 gallons at a time, hmm. and we would do little 12-ounce bottles of each of those that people could get for home delivery or curbside pickup, and then we would do a, a Zoom meeting, basically. It was Facebook Live, really, uh-huh. um, where we would taste through them together, and cool. sometimes they were amazing, and sometimes they weren't. So, so but, but I'm sorry if I can just ask, but where did you jump from home brewing to, I mean, doing great beers at home and then deciding to create a business on it? Where was the jump? Well, so the the hobby very quickly got out of control. It took over my entire garage. Okay. Um, we'd, we'd get together on the weekends, and the brewing process takes about five hours. And the system got to the point where it looked like Breaking Bad in our garage. You know, mm-hmm. the neighbors would be walking by, and they'd stop and say, what on earth are right. they what up to? What are you all to? doing? Right. Um, and you just said, meth. Right? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> it would have been you know, be less of a conversation. But they um, – <laughs> you know, so the neighbors would come over for a beer. The friends would come over for a beer because we couldn't possibly drink – enough uh, to that, that we Try didn't as have you extra. Might. Yeah, right. I, I know. So we we were at different points in our lives. Uh, you know, my dad and my mom were getting ready to retire, and I was sick of commuting into the city every day uh, mm-hmm. from Ashburn. And uh, we decided now was the time to try to make the leap instead of giving away a beer and try to sell it. But it's easier ourselves. it's easier said than done. So getting all the say. all the permits and building the facility and all that. How long did that take? It's about two years. Mm. Yeah, it was about two years from the time we said, yeah, we're serious about this to the time that we opened our doors. It was a long So what were you doing process. in life before that? I did IT contract management for federal government clients. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, so once you opened the brewery and you started producing beer in bigger, larger formats, and as you said, when, we, when you first started talking, you said, you know, listen, there's been an explosion in craft breweries in the D.C. metro area, mm-hmm. Virginia, Maryland, all across the country, really these home brewers who decided to open breweries, what were the kinds of beers that you were looking to create that you were like, this will, this is why we're creating this. This is why we're doing this. We were looking for beers that were accessible to everybody, but interesting enough to kind of make you want to come back and have it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started by brewing a Belgian golden ale mm-hmm. um, and a, Pale ale and a, a, a porter. Okay. Um, and I think we might be one of the all f- my favorites. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, I, to the chagrin of many of the beer people who have been on the show over the last fourteen years, I'm not a huge beer drinker. It's not sure. a it's not a drink I naturally gravitate to. But the beer, the first beer you poured is really delicious. Like it's Thank you. complex in yeah. its flavors. It's, Do you know what I mean? It's not a one note drink. No, it's. Um, I think it's beautiful in its simplicity, but we do use high quality ingredients and we do treat it with love so that you actually, uh, even though it is at the end of the day, a very light, very crisp, Mm -hmm. very easy drinking beer, it does have nuance of flavor. It has depth of flavor that uh, you might not uh, kind of associate with a light, easy drinking beer like this. All right. Well, we're going to come back to you at the end. What are you pouring for us next? Festival. 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 Post, is this what's left over after Christmas? No, no, this is actually, we're getting ready to release it in March. So you guys okay. are getting a sneak peek of, uh, of something that we love. This is one of my favorite beers of the year. 
this we brew in partnership with the National Cherry Blossom Festival. Oh, cool. So this is our liquid representation of spring that you're about to taste, and it is a cherry saison. Excellent. So. I am ready for some spring, especially after a day like today. Exactly. All right. Let's, All right. let's well, talk about giving back. Well, let's talk about how many people are, you know, live a, a life successfully, and they're, they, they do well, and they're happy and secure in their own world, and just go off and be happy and secure in their own world and don't really think about the need that's out there. Um, not our next guest. Mark mm -hmm. Buecher is, is a successful entrepreneur, restaurateur. He's a former radio guy. He's an all-around good guy. So he's totally judging us, I just want to say for the right. And, and he saw, particularly when COVID hit, the people that were kind of living, you know, living and eating on the margins and, and they weren't, you know, they, they couldn't get enough to eat. How do I help them? And he came up with something called Feed the Fridge. But you're it, negating the work he did before he launched Feed the I'm Fridge. not negating. I'm you not are, mentioning it yet. Because he was already That's, negating a, part, is different. A, a part of feeding people, I mean, not just through his restaurants, but when, during the holidays. He had things already happening. Right, Mark? Am I wrong? You are correct. It's nice to be with you both, it's so by nice the way. To and, and to hear us argue. Yes, <laughs> thank you. And, and by the way, just just saying, Chris, you've got a future in radio. Like, number <laughs> one in your hearts, number voice. one on the charts, the IHL of rock and roll, a traffic and weather on the eights. He's got a voice. He does. He's um, got a great voice. Uh, beats pounding a keyboard at DOD, doesn't it, Chris? <laughs> so, Mark, let's hear it. Let's get a little deep. Let's talk about, you've been a part of the restaurant world for a really long time. Yeah. Let's give people a quick 411 on your projects, how you got into it, how you started feeding people initially. You know, it all it all started on March 3rd of 2019. I mean, mm -hmm. I, we've always done our turkey our turkey fries where for the last 15 years. Right. This is through medium rare. Through medium rare. Through mm -hmm. last, well, it was actually before, back when I started BGR, oh, uh, right. which we sold in 2013. The, I go, all right, I'll go all the way back to 2007 when I first Still jumped Bethesda's in. Still Bethesda's best burger, by the way. No okay, question. go ahead. So when the first year we had that restaurant open, it was a big turkey frying year. 2008 was everyone was frying turkeys. So it was a thing to do. And I said, you know, just bring it to me. I'll fry it for free. Don't hurt yourself. I've got a hood. We've got fire systems. No sweat. So we go do turkeys for about 20, 25 people on Thanksgiving morning, me and one of my daughters. And we're done. It's a hot, heavy day. We go out to my car to go home for our Thanksgiving. And there looks to be a, a ticket on my window. And I'm like, God, who, who gave me a ticket after going through what I just went through, burning myself and covering with hot grease? It turned out that it was a thank you note from a family that lived in a shelter directly across the street, never knew it was, there was a group shelter there, said without our cooking their turkey, they wouldn't have had family Thanksgiving. Mm. So I'm like, well, now we got to do this every year. Right. 15 years later, we still do it. Last year in the middle of COVID, we had to do it at Nats Park. The demand was so great. We had thousands and thousands of people lining up because they'd had no ability to cook their turkeys at home. Mm. And the light went off. The light went off with me throughout our turkey fries that – as a, as a country, we, we come up with a lot of solutions to get food or food ingredients to people. We actually haven't solved hunger. Right. Um, we've spent more money on, on hunger and food assistance programs in the last two years than we ever have as a country, and it's still as bad or worse. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is. Insanity. Yeah. Right. So, look, the restaurant business, our, our industry, and actually the first – call and the first interview I did was with you right and we talked about this community fridge based idea where we wanted to put restaurant meals in fridges mm -hmm. and put them around DC at that point it was where the students were going to be 
attending school but not going to school. There was no student lunch program. Right. Well, I think what was also happening is we had two – you had two issues at this moment. That's right. Right? So restaurants needed money. Right. And people who – especially kids who normally got their food uh, in school uh, were not – we had issues. Right. So you saw the need. I was like, I can fix this. Yeah. So, you know, we – starting back in March 19 – before COVID was really hit here, it was like two weeks before the first case of COVID hit here, there was an announcement that said, if you were over the age of 70 or were immune compromised, just stay inside and ride this thing out. Right. And I just put a tweet out and said, anyone knows anybody in the situation, we'll deliver free medium rare dinner to them, no questions. Mm -hmm. 30,000 meals later that first year, mm -hmm. we realized there was a real problem, especially with the elderly. Sure. So now we're focused on it. But also during that period, D.C., Montgomery County, Fairfax County, Arlington County are calling me saying we have families in crisis that need meals. And the one thing restaurants got really, really good at in COVID was I can get a meal to any address in 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates. Our packaging got better. It used to be Chinese food and pizza when we were growing up. Right. Now you, we can order sushi or, or Mediterranean food, have it here in 30 minutes. Right. So I could put it in an Uber or I could put it through DoorDash's delivery metric and get it to any address in, the, in this area. The government can't do that. They didn't have a credit card to pay for it. They didn't have the ability to move that fast. Mm -hmm. So we started pushing meals out to these families in crisis. Mm -hmm. When the kids were going back to school, if you remember, it was a game time decision, virtual or in person. It was like two weeks before the start of school. And DC said, um, our parks and rec centers are going to have virtual uh, internet. We're going to have laptops. Kids can come here to uh, attend school. Kids that are technology insecure are always food insecure. Of course. So we put community fridges have been around. They've been in L.A. They've been in New York. So I went and borrowed refrigerators from the Washington Nationals who had all these fridges around the concourse of the uh, stadium, but no fans. And we started filling them medium rare meals every day. And that was the beginning of Feed the Fridge when we saw the impact it was having on the community. And so now how has it evolved? So here we are. I mean, there's a need for this COVID, no COVID, right? I yeah. mean, there is food insecurity is a massive issue. There are lots of people. I know you work with Deb Shore at uh, Share Our Strength, uh, No Kid Hungry. Um, there's lots of organizations, national organizations, local organizations that are trying to find ways to tackle this need. So how, here we are, two, two almost two years later, how are you, how is it changed? How has it evolved? So at its basic primitive, see, like I brought your prior guest in it, at its yeah, primitive, primitive level. Thanks yeah. for integrating all these subjects. We're, we're hungry, we eat. Guess what happens the next day? We're hungry again. Right. It's a cycle. And the food pantry model is good in a lot of ways. We saw a lot of the box giveaways of ingredients. We saw the 4,000 cars lined up in Texas to get the boxes of ingredients of food. But what happened tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And what happened next week? There was no, they weren't there. It wasn't consistent. So hunger kept reoccurring. But you know, I'm going to, we have to take a break, but I'm, I want to leave it on this before we come back. I think one of the issues with food insecure and socioeconomical issues, right? People who are in poverty or mm -hmm. cannot figure it out. If they don't have the tools, they don't have an oven. If they don't have heat, if they don't, if they didn't grow up or they weren't in an area where they know how to cook or what to do with the food or how to package, uh, you have leftovers, what to do with it. Like if you don't have those skills, then there's another issue. You just hit the oh, nail yeah. on the head without okay. even knowing it. You just opened up the tennis ball can. Right. Okay, great. We're gonna oh, wait, talk. wait, wait, wait. Me, we have to take no, a break. I don't care. Give okay. me a second because Mark and I were talking before. We're even going to talk about people 
who on these on a lot of food donations, they can't take canned goods because they don't have a can opener. Right, simple, right, simple, simple thing. Tools. Okay, David and Nikki Nellis, we're getting super serious here, but it's important. We'll be back in just a sec on Foodie and the Beast. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis talking to Mark Bucher, who is the mastermind behind Feed the Fridge and feeding folks who are really on the edge, particularly during the p- pandemic, um, and are food deprived, food in need. So, um, Mark, one of the questions I have is how do you – you put these refrigerators around the city. Is it just word of mouth? Is that how people find out about it? It's pretty quick. Um, it's like mono in a 12th grade high school class. <laughs> or it's uh, like COVID. Hey. Hello? <laughs> and not only is Omicron. It, it's Omicron. It's Omicron. Not only is it that, it's Wednesday is Chicken Tiki Masala Day, and uh. there's people lining up waiting for it. Um, we've built – so a couple, a couple backbones – premises of Feed the Fridge. There's food there every single day. Set your watch by it. It arrives the same time every single day. And is it, is it dinner? Is it lunch? What What is it? It's all the above. So we went to the American Association of Pediatrics. We did not go to the USDA because the whole school lunch program is a whole other problem. We could have a whole other show on that. Okay. We went and said, what is needed to keep a child satiated for six hours? Mm-hmm. Meaning they eat a meal, there's no snacking. They don't come home from school. And we've all had kids where they come home at 3.30 and they eat the equivalent of another meal, mm-hmm. whether it's frozen pizza or whatever it is. And then you have dinner again two or three hours later for those that have food on the table. Right. If you don't have food on the table, they're grabbing the bot, the bag of Doritos or the bag of chips um, and the sugary sodas at 3.30. And then they go. And part of that is this whole childhood obesity cycle. Sure. So we said, what keeps kids satiated, not hungry? Six ounces of protein. Six ounces of carbohydrate, six ounces of a green or fresh vegetable, mm-hmm. period. And no sugary waters, no sugary sodas, sure. no candy, no chocolate. And that's what I we put out. Chocolate. Well, uh, we, we have done, we've had some great, actually, high school bakers in the area <laughs> make cookies Ooh, that we've little, put in a little, bit. a little bit. Dark chocolate's good. <laughs> yes. And that keeps kids, active kids, satiated until dinner time or until their next meal. Okay. For the elderly, it's two meals. Mm-hmm. And it's good for them for an entire day, sometimes even more. Um, and that, those are our meals, and that's what our requirements are. We buy these from local restaurants and local chefs every day. Well, that was my next step. So at what point, Medium Rare was executing most of it. When did you start bringing in the other restaurants? Well, you know, there's, there's this whole the, – the honest truth mm-hmm. is the restaurant business doesn't work. No. 51% of restaurants or more fail within X number of I years. Mean, the margins are insane. It's a, it's a right. broken business model. That's, a, that's another show. It's a whole other show. Right. So I wanted to fix that. I especially wanted to change it here because D.C. is made up of neighborhood restaurants. Mm-hmm. They're local people and local chefs. Their kids go to school with our kids. Mm-hmm. And if, whenever you have a charity or want to raise money, they're the first people to raise their hand and say, how can I help? Of course. So I said, you know, we can solve this. So let's raise money. Let's form a 501c3 nonprofit. Let's raise money. Then let's go purchase meals from restaurants. So besides COVID keeping everybody shut down or limited in their abilities to conduct business, my thought was if I could buy 100 meals a day from a restaurant at $6 a meal before they open to the public, when they do open to the public, that meal period is more profitable to them. The rent's paid, the utilities are paid, the labor's paid for the day. They can make more money and just hang in there. Mm-hmm. Or they can make enough money to stay at the waterline. Our, our, yeah. our, our strategy was, and me, I, mean, I would talk to everyone in the industry here, is, Look, we all just need to keep our nose right at the waterline. We need to come up, get a breath of air. We'll go under, but we need to come up, right. grab our air, and go under. Just hang there through COVID. And I'm actually proud to say that none of our partner restaurants, 29, Great. no, 
39 in the area have gone out. They're all here with us. Right. Um, and they kept their employees. And they're the ones that are winning now because they're staffed. So we, we kept them going, and, and this is all part of chefs and restaurants can solve hunger in America. They can solve the lunch program. They can solve a lot of problems. Just embrace us and use us. Mm-hmm. And I've been raising my hand uh, to the federal government and state government saying, I'm here to help. Okay, on that note, because we have two minutes. So you're here to help. We would like to help. You know, there's this mad dash in December, yeah. you know, to spend money, give to charities, everybody wants to volunteer on Christmas Eve, like David and I. Um, and uh, But then we hit January yeah. and February. Dry and January is more than just dry for alcohol, no it's dry for contributions too. Clearly we do not check that in here. <laughs> I have a whole thing about that. But um, having said that, so how do people get involved now? How do we help feed the fridge and, and get involved. Do you need volunteers? Do always. You, always. And what does always. volunteering look like So now? we need drivers that Good. will volunteer to bring meals to people's homes mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. We need folks to go around and check the refrigerators and make sure they're clean and operating at temperature. We need people to go bring meals. And then we have emergency responders. And what I mean by that is we may, I may get a call, a text, or an email at 5 o'clock saying, look, I haven't eaten in three days. I need a meal, and I'm wheelchair-bound. I can't get out of my house. Mm-hmm. We get a meal to them. It, it, it's just we. I don't go to bed at night until I know everyone's fed. But um, do you have a facilitator? Is do you have a traffic manager handling all this? We we have we have a director of operations, not for feeding the fridge. We have an executive director. Uh, mm-hmm. Leah Kraft is our executive director. She's been amazing. She came out of the homelessness side of things here in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, very dialed in on what we need to do. And we've got a bunch of college kids. We've got volunteers. And we've got a paid operations manager. But I can also put it in an Uber and get it there. So sure. we'll just call. You know, we'll call Kava and say, we need dinner for four, run it on, run it on my credit card. Uber's going to be there to pick it up and then they bring it and deliver it. And that's what we do um, just to make sure that everyone that needs a meal gets a meal. Is uh, there, well, you, last question. Okay. Uh, monitoring the volume of what's in each fridge. I mean, I don't know if people, is it, I mean, does somebody take care to make sure somebody's not uh, stockpiling meals? And- you know, it's interesting. When, when I first went to the government, and said, I want to put fridges in your, will you let me put fridges in your facilities? DC said, how fast can you go? Sure. They, it was amazing how fast DC moved. Other counties were like, well, what happens if there's graffiti? What happens if someone knocks over the fridge? What happens you if there's tampering? when it happens. Which is what I said. I said, who cares? Who cares? We, 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 we put tamper-proof containers in the fridges. We, I, put, I put commercial refrigerators out, that, commercial refrigerators out, not residential refrigerators. We make sure they're maintained. We make sure they're clean. We make sure the temperatures are right. But most importantly, if someone takes three meals, they need it. Yeah. There'll be more tomorrow. And who cares? Who cares? And I then, well, what about signups? What about demographic information? Well, how's that helped you in the past? It's done nothing yeah. to solve hunger. So what are you using it for? Just to intimidate people? All right. Listen, we we could talk a lot longer. Yeah. Unfortunately, the show is going to end, and i got to bring Chris back. Uh, tell everybody where they can find Feed the Fridge online and how they can help. So feedthefridge.org okay, is our great. website. You can donate there. And when you think about donating with yourself, your company, your associations, your nonprofits, hunger happens every day in every meal period. Mm-hmm. What I'm asking for, it's not a one, it's $5 a month every month. It's just a continuous regular gift that helps us not worry about fundraising, which means we can feed more people. I spend half my time right now worried about money coming in and fundraising as opposed to what I could do if I were free to really think about how to solve these problems like cookware and utensils and can openers for those at soup kitchens, which we want to do because that solves hunger. To your point, right. that solves it. Okay, great. I Thank you so much. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I have more questions, but I can't ask yeah. them. Chris, back to you. What'd you pour for us? 
All right. For the last pour, mm -hmm. I have selected Black Ox, which is our rye porter. It's a, a rose. a meal and a half. It's no, delicious. but it's kind of, it's got a lot of chocolate. It does. But it's not sweet. No, not overly sweet. So it's going to have heavy. a little bit of kind of fresh ground espresso. It's mm -hmm. going to have a little bit of dark chocolate mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit of rye spice uh, as for just something a little interesting at the end. Is that R-Y-E or W-R-Y? R-Y-E. Uh, uh, so uh, well, no, I have a question about okay, the great, beer. We, beer ahead. is not your subject. Okay, go ahead. Um, you, because it is a dark beer, do you get a lot of, I mean, you know, when you're pouring a dark beer, the first thought is, oh, that's Guinness. I mean, do you get a lot of people who try and compare it to, you know, well, is this like Guinness or this tastes like Guinness? Because this yeah. has its own I think that's really natural. Flavor. I mean, people compare things to what they're familiar with. Sure. And, and Guinness is by far the most popular dark beer in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so we absolutely get that. And if we have a favorable comparison, we're well, flattered. So, that. Yeah, sure. that is a huge compliment. But I would say, don't you think, I mean, in this region, there's a real educated beer consumer absolutely. out there. I mean. As I said, I'm not a prolific beer drinker, but I certainly know and more and more every day, right? Absolutely, exactly. Okay, so Chris, we do have to wrap up. Tell um, everybody like how they can come in and try your tasting rooms, like find you everything, get, order your beer, etc. Absolutely. So the best way to find information on us is to go to our website, oldoxbrewery.com. Uh, if you find yourself in Ashburn or in Middleburg, we have tasting room hours. Uh, in Ashburn, Tuesday through Sunday. Mm -hmm. We have tasting room hours in Middleburg, Wednesday through Sunday. Come take a day trip. It's a it's a lovely drive, and and maybe one of the only benefits of the pandemic is the traffic has been uh, so Last. light. Yeah, you can yeah. actually get up Route 50. That's yeah. right. It only took me 25 minutes to get here today. Love so it. come on, uh, come on out. Come okay. on, COVID. Are you guys okay. on Instagram? We are Old Ox Brewery. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today on Foodie and the Beast. Uh, so many ways to eat well and feed your soul, obviously, as we heard from uh, Dr. Bill Schindler and his wife, Christina. Um, great brews happening out there in uh, Ashburn, Virginia. And honestly, most importantly, ways to feed those who can't feed themselves. It's really important. Just because the holidays are over, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who are still going hungry. And you get well. You're getting a lot of solicitations from from all kinds of nonprofits, but five bucks a month to feedthefridge.org would be a great gift. Sixty bucks a year is nothing. That is nothing. Uh, and on that note, uh, please remember you need your vaccination cards when you go to restaurants in the D.C. metro oh, yeah. area. So. Don't be a jerk about it. Wear a mask because you're going to be asked to. Don't be a jerk about that either. If you're not vaccinated, what are you waiting for? Get your booster. Everybody, please be safe. It looks like the numbers are going down. Let's make it last this time. Be careful out there and have a delicious week. 